a little over a year and a half into our relationship with this virus, and we've already delivered, according to WHO, somewhere on the order of three and a half billion doses of vaccine, which is miraculous. Um, no, no one would have predicted, you know, by the middle of, of 2021, that three and a half billion doses of vaccine would have, would have been delivered. Welcome to Contain This. I'm Robin Davies from the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security. Today, I'm joined by Richard Hatchett from the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. Richard, you're perhaps one of the busiest people I know. We're really pleased to talk to you today. Australia has been a strong supporter of CEPI since 2019, with a total investment of $12 million. Richard, thanks for joining us. Now, we'll spend a lot of time, of course, talking about COVID vaccines today. But but before we do that, I wanted to take you back really to the beginning um, and talk a bit about the purpose of CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. Um, it's an organisation that very few people um, were aware of only two years ago. Now it is, has become um, a household name. It's playing a central role um, in COVAX. Um, so it's been a fascinating journey. But could you tell us a, a bit about how CEPI started, what its original purpose was? You're right. Our profile has certainly increased dramatically as a, as a response to the pandemic. So CEPI was established uh, in the wake of Ebola epidemic to develop vaccines against emerging infectious diseases. Initially, we were focused on epidemic diseases, the diseases that WHO had identified as presenting epidemic threats, diseases like Ebola, but also loss of fever, MERS, Nipah, which is, of course, related to the Hendra virus that is occasionally pops up in Australia. We we were working on those diseases when we got the first reports of, of a new outbreak in China, and we had really only very recently developed our emergency response protocols. I mean, we'd spent several years building the organization up. We weren't quite three years old when the first reports emerged about the outbreak in uh, Wuhan. And we really dialed up our alert posture quite quickly in the first week of January. And then as things unfolded over over the next couple of weeks and we, we were observing the response in Wuhan and watching the numbers begin to rise around the middle of the month, we decided very rapidly to sponsor the development of vaccines against the new virus, and we moved very rapidly to do so. And ultimately, we're able to establish a you know a, a large geographically and uh, in terms of the technology uh, diverse portfolio of vaccine candidates, and, and we've been pushing those forward ever since. I think one of the unique things about CEPI is that we focused both on the development of vaccines against emerging infectious diseases and on ensuring access for all populations to those vaccines. And in the COVID response, we used our investment of funds for research and development to secure access commitments to what ultimately became the COVAX effort to distribute vaccines globally. So before CEPI was created, there were um, somewhere between 15 and 20 existing product development partnerships, a lot of them working on the development of drugs for neglected diseases. How would you say that the SEPI model differs? Is it more end-to-end, for example? 
I think it differs in a, in a couple of important ways. CEPI was as a product in its aspect as a product development partnership, and it is a product development partnership. It was focused on a category of problem, epidemic disease. And so we weren't limited by geography. We weren't limited to, you know, a, a, a specific defined disease, but we were focused on a problem. And, and so we were, um, striving to develop capacities to respond to that problem in, in all of its sort of protean manifestations. I think the other thing that's different about CEPI is that we were set up as a, as a coalition to bring together stakeholders to address that category of problem. And so we bring together countries uh, that invest in CEPI and that partner with CEPI. We bring together philanthropies. The private sector has a, has a very important role in the CEPI coalition. And, and we also work with civil society partners and that big tent approach, you know, trying to bring all of the actors together and, and in, in a way trying to serve as a, as a fair or neutral broker to balance the incentives for everyone to participate has been a very important uh, part of our success. It's, it's, it's a big challenge, obviously, but I, I think it really defines CEPI as an organization. How, how do you make choices ab- about, um, where to put, where to put your funding across a portfolio? Before COVID, we had a, a, you know, a reasonably long list of diseases that present epidemic threats. WHO had 10 or 11 diseases on their uh, list of so-called priority pathogens and 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 we did down select from that list to really five or six different diseases and they and we we wanted to work on diseases where vaccines we thought were an important part of the capability set that we needed we had actually one of the diseases that we worked on before covid was the middle eastern respiratory syndrome or or mers which i think many of your listeners may be aware uh, is caused by a coronavirus that is actually related to COVID. And so we had allocated about $140 million into a, a set of five different vaccine candidates working against MERS, one of which was from the University of Queensland. And we wanted, uh, when, when COVID emerged, we um, turned those partners who were working on MERS vaccines, they were, we thought they were well positioned to work on COVID. And so we invited many of them to work on COVID vaccines. There had not been any licensed coronavirus vaccines, and we weren't sure which approach was likely to be successful. Um, and so we wanted to have a, a technologically diverse portfolio using a variety of different approaches to vaccine development. And so we invested in DNA vaccines. We invested in mRNA vaccines. We invested in protein-based vaccines and, and, and vaccines delivered through viral vectors. We really wanted to spread our bets because we didn't know which ones would succeed, which ones would succeed fastest. But we wanted to make sure we had a lot of shots on goal. The other way we diversified our risk, and this has proved to be really important, was we, we anticipated the risk of vaccine nationalism. We anticipated that countries would buy up vaccine supplies when they knew which vaccines were successful. So 
in addition to having a diversified portfolio in terms of technology, we also wanted to have a diversified portfolio in terms of the geography of the vaccine developers. And for some of the vaccines, we also invested in, in transferring the technology to additional countries so that we had a really broad spread um, in, in the hopes that we would be able to secure access to vaccine from somewhere, whatever the circumstances were. And we've seen a lot of the things that we were concerned about. I don't know that we were completely successful in avoiding some of the pitfalls, but we certainly were aware of them in advance. I ask um, a question about financing, um, both on the income and expenditure sides of the ledger, I guess. Um, But then what you get for your funding when you invest in a particular um, vaccine, what what sort of commitments are extracted from the, the relevant industry partners? Sure. The way CEPI is financed is, is, is through contributions from donors. And the vast majority of our donors now are countries. Quite a few have become first-time investors during the COVID epidemic. You know, I think we started with about eight countries prior to COVID, and, and that number's gone up substantially. We take those funds, and, 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 and we've secured around or $2.5 billion of contributions since CEPI was established in 2017. And about two-thirds of that has come during the response to COVID over the last year and a half. But we we take those funds and and we establish contracts with our vaccine development partners. We also fund centralized laboratories. We we fund some work on epidemiology. I mean, there's some non-vaccine development-related activities that we fund. But the major focus of our investments are in supporting actual vaccine development activities. And in writing the contracts, which, you know, describe the development program and and establish sort of, you know, sequential stages of investment. So we don't just turn over as a complete amount of money up front. We we invest stage by stage and, and the partners have to demonstrate progress to get to the next stage of funding. But we also as for access commitments. And that can mean different things um, on different projects. And let me let me focus mainly on COVID because I think it's most relevant in COVID. With our COVID partners, we asked for commitments of doses uh, if the vaccine development programs were successful um, to the uh, global allocation facility. So what that meant was that if our vaccine development programs were successful, COVAX would have right of first refusal to purchase vaccines. Essentially, we were securing a place at the front of the queue for the COVAX facility. Well, let's talk about COVAX. Um, now, the COVAX facility um, brings together CEPI, um, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and the World Health Organization, um, and really also UNICEF as the delivery partner. How would you sort of define CEPI's particular role within the overall division of labor in COVAX? Well, COVAX was designed to provide, you know, an, an end-to-end enterprise in the interest of global vaccine equity. And by bringing those organizations 
together, you know, we've, we've assembled this mechanism, which through the R&D investments that CEPI makes, you know, has its own portfolio of vaccine candidates that are, you know, moving forward. And many of those, many of the candidates that CEPI invested in, Moderna, AstraZeneca most, most prominently, you know, have, have now delivered vaccines that are available under emergency use. The candidates that are in the R&D portfolio, um, you know, are providing vaccine through, through procurements, which are conducted by Gavi, provides the, the diversified pool of vaccines that COVAX can deliver. WHO plays a very important role, obviously, in the, in the international regulation of those vaccines through the emergency use listing procedure or the pre-qualification procedure that, that essentially provides a, a seal of good housekeeping to vaccines that they've been appropriately regulated and are ready to use for many countries that don't have strong regulatory systems. And, and WHO also has developed an allocation procedure. And then, of course, UNICEF has tremendous logistical capabilities, and, and both Gavi and UNICEF and WHO, for that matter, have worked with providers in countries, you know, to ensure that they're able to receive and deliver and use the vaccines that are provided. So by bringing those organizations together, we've, we've created this end-to-end facility. Within that facility, CEPI's role is obviously focusing on, on research and development and making sure that we have the vaccines that we need to fight this virus. There's something that I've often wondered about is, um, I guess, the division of labor in relation to vaccine manufacturing. So how do you sort of divide labor on support for um, manufacturing? Well, you know, you, you picked up on a really important point there, Robin. There, there was a scene in, in, in the system that we put together, which is that there is no organization that um, was directly focused on, on supporting and ensuring the large-scale manufacturing of vaccines. And it, it, it sort of fell between the, the cracks. And so CEPI had to step up into that role. And it's changed the nature of our activities, and, and it's been a hugely important part of the response to the pandemic. It's one of the most challenging uh, aspects of, of vaccine development, obviously. And we have made substantial investments, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to support, uh, particularly the, the scale up and the, and, and the technology transfer of successful vaccine candidates, which is not something that was originally envisioned as, as being part of CEPI's role. But I, I think by virtue of our experience during the pandemic, it has, has become something that we will be doing going forward. I wanted to ask you about the uh, the 100-day um, vaccine uh, manufacturing or, I guess, development and production initiative, which um, CEPI has put forward, uh, which has been endorsed uh, by the G7. Um, the general idea being that um, um, from the point where a need is identified for a vaccine, it can be uh, developed, um, authorised and and manufactured in adequate quantities within 100 days. Um, now, just going back a year, you know, it, it was a from, from a donor perspective, from from the perspective of an organisation that invests in 
product development. Um, it was such a different world at that time. Uh, vaccine investments were very rarely successful. Um, the R&D process could take, you know, 10 years or more. Um, and most of the shots at goal um, failed. And that was one of the reasons why many donors were more inclined to invest in drugs and diagnostics rather than vaccines. Um, once uh, your portfolio of COVID vaccine candidates um, took shape, there was still an assumption that maybe none would succeed, maybe one or two would succeed. Um, but now here we are with um, a significant number of um, effective, safe and effective vaccines, uh, and the real constraint is is manufacturing. So, you know, it's, it's a completely different world. But nevertheless, do you think uh, the 100-day goal, uh, as opposed to what has been, let's say, a three or 400-day goal for COVID vaccines, do you think that is um, feasible? I, I do think it's feasible. I, I think it. I think it's a stretch goal. I think it will require concerted effort and, and, and focus to achieve it when the pandemic started. When I was talking about a 12 to 18-month timeline last January to you know, delivering vaccines, that sounded sort of preposterous. And yet look at where we are. You know, we're, we're, you know, a little over a year and a half into our relationship with this virus and we've already delivered, according to WHO, somewhere on the order of three and a half billion doses of vaccine, which is miraculous. No, no one would have predicted, you know, by the middle of, of 2021 that three and a half billion doses of vaccine would have been delivered. That said, and as fast as the vaccines were developed, it was actually 326 days from release of sequence to um, the UK regulators' emergency authorization of, of the Pfizer vaccine. You know, that hasn't been fast enough. We're, we've now got 4 million, over 4 million documented deaths. Probably the actual number of deaths worldwide is, you know, maybe 10 or 12 million or even more. At this point, um, you know, devastated global economy, um, trillions of dollars of economic losses. So 326 days is miraculous, but not good enough. And the question we asked ourselves was, you know, had we faced a even greater threat? I mean, I mean, SARS, the mortality rate of SARS is probably somewhere on the order of 20 to 30 fold higher than the mortality rate for COVID. Um, if we faced a SARS that had the infectiousness of, of, of COVID, what would we do? And I, I think there are a lot of lessons learned about the vaccine development efforts. Uh, one of the most important lessons in my mind is the value of the prior research on developing MERS vaccines and SARS vaccines, which allowed us to design what have proved to be very highly effective Vaccines, and I think the overall, as you were referring, the overall success rate of the vaccines has been remarkable. And I think a lot of that is because we had a pretty good understanding of the category of threat we were facing, coronaviruses, and making further investments to broaden our ability to respond with the same rapidity to any future threat, no matter what viral family it comes from, I think is a critical part of enabling the 100-day Goal. We also learned a lot about clinical trials, how those could be 
streamlined and essentially, you know, you, you could roll from a phase one to a, you know, a phase two or two B almost directly into a phase three clinical trial. And we've learned about how we might design those late stage clinical trials for maximum efficiency. And I think we have seen some really interesting examples of the ingenuity and creativity that regulators can bring to their work in a crisis where without compromising, you know, evaluations of safety or evaluations of efficacy, but we have to think about how we want to regulate under that environment. And and, and that's a, a big global project. And that's the reason that I was so glad, you know, when CEPI conceptualized that, to have that taken up by the the G7 and, and put at the center of their pandemic agenda and have them embrace it and, and then try to figure out how to implement it, I, I think is a hugely important step for the world. Can I finish by just asking for you to reflect on the the future of, of CEPI um, and perhaps a little bit the future of the, the broader COVAX facility? Yeah, CEPI, CEPI has, has been transformed through our response to the pandemic. I, I think we may have almost tripled in size in terms of number of staff. Our remit has expanded to include manufacturing, as, as you say. We helped conceptualize and create COVAX, which, you know, has not yet achieved its goal in terms of promoting vaccine equity, but I think represents an improvable and necessary model for the future. And I think a COVAX-like facility will become a permanent part of the global emergency preparedness and response architecture. And, and I think if it's adequately prepared and funded, it will in the future contribute much more successfully to ensuring equity of access from the very beginning of availability. I think CEPI, as it moves into this new, hopefully post-pandemic world, There'll be new institutions, new regional arrangements, and a, a heightened focus on national health security. And I think CEPI, as an, as an organization that operates internationally, needs to position itself to facilitate all of those efforts. All of that investment is critically important. You know, we can't control all of that investment, but we can bring groups and people together, and we can help them understand how they're individual investments can add up to greater preparedness for the world. And, and, and we'll obviously be working very closely with other international partners like the WHO and, of course, Gavi and UNICEF and many of the other partners that we have worked with. It's, it's a, a very challenging but a, a very exciting time to be working in this space. My name is Richard Hatchett. I'm uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI. And Robin, I, I just want to thank you and the Indo-Pacific Center for Health Security for having me on the podcast and for all your support of our work. It's been a terrific partnership. Thank you, Richard. That was Richard Hatchett, the CEO of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI, talking about the organization's critical work towards global vaccination coverage for COVID-19 and also other diseases we could face in the future. Please join us again in two weeks' time for another episode of Contain This. Music